Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. This is the Tom Hartman Program. I'm Jefferson Smith. Honored to sit in for Tom today and to be with you. A little bit of change of gear. As we think about much of how we spend our political time, which is critiquing the current occupant of the White House, let us not avoid both broader and deeper as well as very specific conversations about change that can be made. And I want to talk to somebody right now who is addressing something very specific that impacts something very, very broad and deep. It's Mara Cepeda. She's a CEO and co-founder of Switchboard Incorporated. And she joins us now to talk about how could we think about a different way for companies to exit? The topic we're going to be using, the example rather we're going to be using is the example of Meetup. But I think it is emblematic or indicative or maybe a sign of a, just a different way of understanding our economy and how we should be thinking about pathways for companies, including tech companies. Mara, thank you so much for joining us from Massachusetts. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Give people the background on Meetup as to kind of lay the groundwork. Sure. You know, Meetup was founded in the days after September 11th. The founder, Scott Hefferman, really saw that communities were coming together in a very special way uh, to support one another. They were turning towards each other. And it was that premise that he saw after September 11th that really catalyzed and inspired him to start the platform. So the platform is incredibly special. It has millions of users all over the world, and they are actively connecting around civic issues to strengthen civil society, voting, democracy, crafts, arts, um, social justice, any type of meetup you could possibly imagine. And so over the last almost two decades... Yeah, I remember it. I remember it. I, I thought it was a Howard Dean campaign thing. I remember it in 2004 as the way all the Deaniacs were getting together. Yeah, I mean, it was very much used. That was one of the main marquee ways that it was used. And I think that was the first time that many people got to see just the potential. You know, meetups are now, there's about between, you know, something like 13,000 meetups every single day that are happening all around the world. And this is so necessary as we think about the echo chamber of social media and all of the ills that have been born 
from that phenomenon, Meetup is really the antidote and the counterpoint to a lot of what we all complain about is so wrong with social media, that in-person, face-to-face, trust-building exercise that bolsters community and actually brings people together with common cause and purpose. That gesture is core to democracy and civil society. And so what is happening with Meetup now? So about two years ago, Meetup, the platform, was purchased by WeWork. For those of you that haven't been following the WeWork story, it's a bit of an implosion, Um, you know, a massive overvaluation. It's now, I don't know if it's been officially clarified, um, categorized as a distressed asset, but the valuation has tanked. And so Meetup is... Now and the, and the CEO, to, Adam Newman, took a whole bunch of money, uh, at, sold a bunch of stock, paid himself for a bunch of things right before uh, right before it became clear the stock was going to tank. And now, his, and now his workers are suing him and people are comparing him to the current president of the United States. Keep going. Yes, it was. Yeah, it was a real illumination of everything that's currently quite dysfunctional with startup and Silicon Valley culture and the way that we value and prize certain business models. Um, So Meetup was acquired by WeWork about two years ago. And right now, now that WeWork is underwater and really trying to offload um, non-essential assets, I would say, it's selling some of the some of the companies that it acquired, including Meetup. And so there's an opportunity right now for Meetup to actually convert, to exit to community. So, you know, when we think about these big venture capital funded companies, they're looking for an exit. They're looking to make a lot of money for shareholders. Well, Meetup is really special because the primary user group are the organizers and the people that attend Meetups. They have a vested interest in seeing that platform continue to really serve its membership. And so there's talks about what it would look like for Meetup to exit to community. That is, is there a way that we restructure Meetup so that it could be owned by the people that use it and leverage it, which are the organizers, the members, and the employees of the company? Which is which I am fascinated by because this idea, and I'm I'm not going to say anything new that you didn't say, but hopefully I'll retweet you verbally that so often. And I, I talk to folks who you know created their business as young do-gooders, and then they well, what am I going to do to sell it? And a friend of mine who now passed away, you know, his company never made a profit, but he sold it to Amazon for you know fifty million dollars or something. That becomes the exit strategy for so many of these companies, including companies that want to be do-gooder companies, and that they end up just I don't know feeding into oligarchy, and how ironic and how tragic that would be for Meetup as an example, but I think also maybe emblematic of what's happening in the economy generally. So how is this, you're saying exit to community, which I want to say again, just so people start thinking about that as one option for a next step for a company, how would that work or how might it be working now? Well, I think there's sort of the immediate and long-term logistics. So on the immediate side, WeWork is hoping to sell Meetup as fast as possible. And so it would be remarkable to have a coalition of values-aligned investors come in and, you know, initially just do the financing to extract Meetup from WeWork's clutches so that it doesn't get bought up by, you know, just the highest bidder that may not have the best intentions at heart. And then once that initial financing is through, you can start to think about ways that you can align incentives so that the organizers and the people that are responding to meetups and attending meetups and the employees, you essentially create a modern day cooperative. Cooperatives are nothing new. Um, You know, all of us probably can think of a cooperative, whether that's our health food store or a carpet shop or whatever it might be in our local community. Co-ops are far more prevalent in Europe. 
But Nathan Schneider, Trevor Schultz, and others have been working for many years to think about what it would look like to have platform cooperatives, meaning how can we align the incentives of the users with the business model? So instead of us being treated as, you know, um, just this, this endless stream of data that is to be extracted, how can we actually mutually benefit from these platforms? And so the platform cooperative movement was born. And it's really saying, look, these, these virtual assets, these technology platforms, they can be repurposed to become community platform co-ops where all of us then become shareholders of these companies. Um, There are a number of companies that have started this way. There was just a gathering in New York City of the platform cooperative movement last week. I think there are something like um, around 100 different platform co-ops that are now in existence uh, across all sorts of industries. But certainly Meetup, we believe, would be, if it managed to convert to this in the fashion, would be the largest platform co-op in existence um, if it decided that it was able to transition in that fashion. And to give examples of why this, you know, just sort of the simplest examples of why this could matter so much, you already talked about data harvesting for people who don't want to, you know, who don't want just extra Cialis ads, who actually want to control their own data, who people care about uh, managing oligarchy, uh, this could really help. What are the odds that this happens, Mara? Thank you so much for joining us. Well, if you're out there and you're an an investor or um, someone who's enlightened about what's at stake here and how Meetup could be such a phenomenal story, the Zebras Unite movement has been talking to some aligned investors. Um, You know, we would just love to pause for a second. Stay Stay with us. Stay with us after the break. We'll be right back. This is the Tom Hartman Program. You are listening to Tom Hartman Program. How can we realign the incentives in the economy and have a more shared economy that works? We're going to be talking about that. We're back with Mara Zepeda uh, from Brighton, Massachusetts, talking about how zebras can unite, how a zebra could arise from a unicorn's fall. And you were just saying what needs to happen or what are the odds of it happening? And I think you were saying, hey, anybody who's listening who is an investor type, you might want to get on board. But continue, continue with your plug. I think what you're doing is fascinating and hugely important. Yeah, I mean, I think... Um First of all, meetup organizers, self-organize. <laughs> this is something that you want. Um, you know, get have your voices be heard and and start to organize because I think that that's going to be so meaningful. Second, for people that are interested in civil society and democracy and just see the urgency of an asset like meetup being owned by um, the most important stakeholders that are really its users, its organizers, its employees. Get in touch. Uh, the email address is hello at zebrasunite.com. That's hello at zebrasunite.com. More generally, to all of your listeners, we just encourage you to learn more about online cooperatives, the platform cooperative movement, and different ownership structures. All of these digital assets that all of us use every day, they were designed to make shareholders wealthy by selling advertising and mining our personal data. But as we think about the future of technology, it doesn't have to be that way. And the first step to it not being that way is to come up with creative alternative ownership models that actually are aligned with the public's interest rather than treating us as an extractive, um, you know, just extracting our information from us. So there is a potential to do this in the future, but it starts 
with different corporate structures and capital systems to align those incentives. So how would, so first of all, if I were to go and email hello at, at zebrasunite.com, which, by the way, I was recently co- corrected by uh, by a, a, a woman of German descent that it's, it's zebras. I'm not I'm not here uh, to yeah. advocate, but I'm just passing along what I learned. So if I if I pronounce yeah. it funny, it's just because I don't want her to get mad at me. The uh, so so <laughs> when okay. so when uh, if someone were going to email that and say, hey, I want to help and put in some money, uh, what would that mean? Is there actually a fund being developed? Is that still in the works? What's happening? Well, you know, we're just right now we're looking for aligned investors and we're trying to figure out what the appetite is. So the timeline, as we understand it, is obviously pretty fast because Meetup is, um, you know, we work as in a bit of a pickle, as as those of us who know have been following the story. And so, you know, I think our, our ambition here is twofold. On the one hand, it would be quite remarkable if we were able to find an exit to community for Meetup. Um, anyone that is interested in democracy should be looking at the asset of Meetup and should be thinking about how much it's going to impact society if that just falls into the hands of the highest bidder. We have a huge opportunity right now to take this asset and to, to convert it into a platform cooperative, which would be an incredible story. So there's right now in this moment, this is what's possible, and we're really looking for people um, and and visionary individuals and organizations that see the potential there for how much this could serve civil society and democracy as it has. And then moving forward, if we don't manage, um, you know, this time around, for all of your listeners to just become aware that we are slaves to corporate structures. And so we need new corporate structures that liberate all of us, our data, our information from the stranglehold of venture capital and the advertising model that's currently destroying the foundations of society. We have an opportunity to re-envision that future. Preach, Mara. I know, folks, this might sound like nerdy stuff, but pick up what Mara's putting down. If we can change ownership structures, we can save America. Mara, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. I think she was going to say it was a pleasure. I'm not sure. I hope yeah, so. Yeah, we'll it was back. a pleasure. <laughs> All right, bye-bye. Take care. Bye. People are always asking me, is the X chair really as comfortable as you say? And my answer is always yes. In fact, I probably don't do a good enough job describing just how great that chair feels, So, or this chair. So take my advice, get one and feel it for yourself. Thanks to the X chair's 30-day, no questions asked, guarantee of complete satisfaction, you have no risk. So if you're wondering if what I say is true, try it for yourself. Once you feel the X chair's patented dynamic variable lumbar support, their DVL, you'll understand exactly why I love my X chair so much. Take advantage of XChair's new financing option and increase your productivity with the right model for you, the X-Basic or X1 through X4. The XChair can fit your body and your budget. XChair is now on sale for 100 bucks off. Just go to XChairTom.com. That's XChairTom.com or call 1-844-4XChair. Go to XChair.com now and use the code WHEELS and you'll receive a free set of the new X-Wheels with your XChair. XChairTom.com. That's XChairTom.com or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR. All right, folks, it's time for the speed round. In that last segment, we were talking about how do we change ownership structures. I want to say that email address again. It's hello at zebrasunite, or if you prefer, hello at zebrasunite.com. How do we have platform co-ops so that people can align the incentives with democracy and their own interests rather than just getting harvested? If we can 
change corporate structures, if we can change ownership structures, we can change America. If we can't change ownership structures, we got a real problem in trying to save America. Let's do a speed round. Folks have been waiting patiently. Let's try to clear the board, see how well we can do. And I'll try to abide by the speed round as well. Roger from Ohio, you're on speed round. Thanks for taking my call. Pleasure to speak with you. I wanted to speak briefly on centrism as the politics of nothing. I have observed in my own experience that the people who are centrist really don't believe much of anything. They're too fearful to take a uh, firm side on either a conservative or liberal or whatever have you. Uh, and I think that's very bad. I think they need to come down on one side of the fence or the other. Um, they just want to be oh so careful, go through things so slowly. And if they don't want to change things boldly, they don't want to change anything. Um, centrists typically want to move along so slowly that they don't change anything and nothing good gets done. So I don't think centrism is a good thing. And I think it's a kind of closet conservatism. Lou, thank you so much, Roger, for that call. Lou, you're on from Pueblo. Yes. You're on speed round. Oh, okay. Hey, good, Jefferson. Hey, I was just going to make a comment. I believe this centrist, you know, liberal, whatever, these are all relative and fluid. They change with time. For example, if I was going to identify myself, I'm a bit to the left of Bernie Sanders and very much in alignment with the 1956 Republican platform. The 1956 Republican platform protects Social Security and extended to all Americans, all ages. Continue and perfect assistance for people with employment problems, the handicapped, etc. Improve unemployment. Protect the assets of employee welfare and benefits so people get pensions. Assure equal pay for equal work regardless of sex. Federally assisted construction and a strong minimum wage for public supply contracts, extend minimum wage to everyone, continue to end, fight for the end of discrimination, provide assistance for the economic conditions of areas that have high unemployment, revise Taft-Hartley to protect more effectively unions and extend the union membership to as many workers as possible. That's a Republican platform. Today it would be called... If you can, yes. if you can get me a link, if you can get me a link, my uh, my uh, Twitter handle is uh, Jefferson D Smith uh, at, at Jefferson D Smith on Twitter. If you can get me a uh, get me a link, I'll tweet that out because uh, that is. I, I have is. got your email address. I can send it there. All right, appreciate it, Lou. We're on speed round. Uh, Bye. All right, take care, John from Sunland. John, you're on from Sunland, California. John, you there? Yes. Go ahead, John. Yes. We're, you're on speed round. Uh, okay, I was calling on this Veterans Day to represent the Vietnam War protesters. It was the Vietnam War protesters that uh, really were instrumental in stopping the war. And you asked, what is the purpose of government? Is it to protect the people? Well, you think about Kent State and four people died The the... Uh, the, the National Guard killed four people at Kent State. Was that was that reckless? I mean, I don't know. Were they being reckless? They were, they were just standing up for what was right, you know. Um, I don't know how, um, if it's right to, to, to just uh, kill people for, because the government made up um, lies to yeah. perpetuate the war in Vietnam or perpetuate the war in Iraq. Uh, what, what are your thoughts? 
Well, my first thought is thank you, and I think it is really legitimate on Veterans Day to honor both those who have who have risked their lives in uh, in armed conflict and those who have questioned the morality of of armed conflict or the wisdom of a given instance of armed conflict, and we should embrace. Uh, embrace both discussions. I guess this is speed round, so I'll leave it at that so I can get to Margie, at, or it might be Margie, at Wisconsin Rapids, Wisconsin. Hi, I'd like to get back to our conversation that you started about health care. Please. And we need, we need to start talking about the actual cost of health insurance, because it drives me crazy. They only talk about, like, our private health insurance. We also need to include the other ways that we are paying for this. Let's start with workman's comp. If you're injured on the job, your personal health insurance will not cover you. Let's talk about our automotive coverage. That includes medical liability, where if you're in an accident, you're going to be covering the cost of somebody else's medical. Same with homeowner's insurance. Same with business insurance. All of these are also health insurance costs that are completely left out of the conversation. I'm in the middle of this right now. I was injured supposedly on the job. I have been refused on my personal medical insurance. And as an independent owner-operator, I pay for my full cost of workman's comp. So I literally pay two times for my health insurance. Margie, it's an excellent point. And I'm sorry you're going through that. And I know so many other Americans are going through similar stuff, whether they run their own business, whether they have, whether they even have a job. But, the, but it's, I'll give you another one. And that is just the taxes that we pay. All this discussion, all the taxes are going to go up if we do health care for all. Uh, recognize that one of the biggest drivers of state taxes, one of the biggest drivers of what it costs to run schools, what it costs to run police departments, what it costs to run fire departments, are health care costs, health benefits costs, which are so high. If we did get a handle on those, if we did have a better system of insurance and could drop those costs by 30%, that could increase our ability to deliver services or decrease taxes that people pay federally and state. So you're right, hidden costs of our stupid non-healthcare system is a wonderful point. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Show. We're going to be right back after this. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Call 202-808-9925. We fight for democracy. We advocate for democracy. And coming up next, Drew Penrose is going to talk about what just happened to ranked choice voting. We're back. have a democracy fetish. I'm fascinated by the thing. It doesn't mean I always love it, but it does mean I remain fascinated. In it. I remain desirous of it. I am hopeful that we can engage with it and make democracy better. And I'm grateful to our next guest, Drew Penrose from fairvote.org, who's going to talk to us about ranked choice voting and what just happened in the election. Drew, Colin from Maryland, how you doing? Good. Glad to be on the show. 
So ranked choice voting, do you want to do the update first or describe ranked choice voting first? Why don't we describe ranked choice voting first? What the heck is it? A lot of our listeners know it. We have a, you know, a bunch of nerds like me who listen, but, uh, but there's some less nerdy people who probably want to know as well. Sure. It's, it's not just for nerds anymore. We're, we're in the mainstream now. Yeah, ranked choice is that is that the uh, is that the brochure is that and yeah, <laughs> right, I put yeah. the first emphasis on the first syllable of brochure. Uh, it's not for nerds anymore. Anyway, keep going. Right. Yeah, right. Ranked choice voting is a method of voting, and it's not too different from what people do today. In most places, you just choose your favorite candidate, and whoever happens to get the most votes is the one that winds up winning the election. Ranked choice voting, it's just like that. You choose your favorite candidate, except. If your favorite candidate can't win, you actually get to say, well, this was this is my backup choice, this is my second choice, this is my third choice, and so on. That way, when you count up those first choices, if nobody has a majority of the vote, you eliminate the candidate in last place. And if your favorite candidate, your top choice is eliminated, then your vote counts for your backup. Your vote counts for your second choice. And you what's just the, repeat that. What's the difference between ranked choice voting and instant runoff voting? Same thing? Yeah, the instant runoff voting is uh, another word that's used for ranked choice voting in some places. Uh, technically, ranked choice voting can also apply to other forms of voting where you rank your choices. For for example, it's used in multi-winner elections as a form of proportional representation, which is also a really, a really good thing, but it's not the form of voting that was used in most places that used it this past Tuesday. And this has mostly been an idea, right? I mean, it has mostly been something that, a, that some math nerd would say, hey, here's a better way to, uh, to actually do this stuff. Or sometimes after, maybe after like the Ralph Nader election, they say, oh, well, here's the, uh, after George Bush, George W. Bush beats uh, Al Gore, there are people who say, oh, here's another way we could do it. But it's been just kind of an idea. What places have actually enacted before Tuesday? Uh, who's actually used it? Maybe San Francisco? Who else? Right. So that's what I would have said when I started at Fair Vote, I think. At the time, it felt like it was just something that, that I had heard about. It and seemed like a really great idea to me. And when I talked to people about it, it seemed like a good idea to them. But it, it wasn't something that a lot of people had known more viscerally. However, the uses of it have really exploded in the United States. So I could list off the places yeah, that are using awesome. it today. In the California Bay Area, you've got San Francisco, Berkeley, San Leandro, and Oakland. And actually, we should uh, say, this is a perfect time to say what just happened, because I think a big jurisdiction just adopted this, yeah? That's right. So the big news is that New York City adopted ranked choice voting, the instant runoff form of ranked choice voting, for use in their primary elections citywide. Now, the use of ranked choice voting in New York City more than triples the number of people in the United States using ranked choice voting. So it really does, uh, you know, in 2016, Maine, the state, adopted it for all of its statewide elections. It used it for the first time for federal congressional elections in 2018. It's going to be using it in 2020. They actually expanded it to include their presidential election as well. So it'll be used for president in Maine in 2020. But even with Maine using it, counting everybody in Maine, New York City still triples the number of people. And in terms of budgetary size, at risk of promoting Michael Bloomberg's candidacy for president and bolstering (laughs) his uh, bona fides, the uh, New York City, here's a fun fact for you who like fun facts, New York City is the third biggest government in terms of budget uh, in the United States. First, the U.S government, second state of California, third is the city of New York, because they also run their schools, whereas in our state, in California, for instance, the uh, schools are run uh, run and funded by the state. So New York, was it a close vote in New York? Oh, no, not at all. There, there, was, there was no doubt as to what New Yorkers wanted. It passed with about 75% in favor. 
So 75% in favor of vote in New York. That makes it the biggest jurisdiction, multiplies the number of people who live in realms with ranked choice voting. Go ahead and continue your list of now who else has it. Did you get, get through it all sure. already or anybody left? Oh, oh, no. So I mentioned Maine. I mentioned the four cities in the California Bay Area. A couple cities in New Mexico. So Santa Fe used it for the first time in June of 2018, went really well there and expanded almost immediately to the city of Las Cruces, New Mexico, who used it for the first time this past Tuesday. A couple of cities in Utah used a form of ranked choice voting. That was a, a bill that passed with broad bipartisan support out of the Utah State Legislature to allow cities to do it. And two of them picked it up, Payson and Vineyard few cities Wait, in what, which, which Utah towns? Uh, I, I know Utah somewhat, but I don't know those towns. Same again. Okay. They're both pretty small towns. So yeah. There's Payson, Payson, Utah, and Vineyard, Utah. They're both in Utah County. Yeah. And they're doing that for their city council races? That's right. Yeah, That's they used it for a few city council seats, three seats in Payson, two seats in Vineyard, and they'll use it in their mayoral elections next election cycle. Keep going. Okay. Uh, a couple places in Minnesota. So Minneapolis has been using it for a while. St. Paul. Uh, St. Paul had an election. This they added St. Louis Park, which used it for the first time. So five places across the United States used it for the very first time. So you, you want to talk about the momentum that what do this you, is growing with. What do you chalk up? And one of the things I find fascinating about your list, it's not all just fluffy-hearted blue places, right? I mean, this Mm -hmm. is, when you mentioned Utah, first the Utah legislature had to allow it, and then a couple towns in Utah actually had to install it. Uh, This is something that seems to have appeal across what otherwise seem like impenetrable partisan barriers. What do you chalk that up to? What do you uh, ascribe the momentum to? Absolutely. Uh, It's a completely nonpartisan reform. Just sort of a smarter way of doing elections, you know, the... The way we do them now, choosing only one, has a certain kind of intuitive appeal. It's simple, but I think after we've been using it for a while, we've started to see some consequences to it that we don't like too much. So one is that a lot of these places, the cities in Utah, for example, were holding runoff elections. So you hold a second election. And there's a simple reason not to like that. It's expensive. You know, you you have to spend a bunch of money to hold a second election to have people come back to try to get majority support. And then not that many people wind up showing up for the runoff election anyway, which often undermines the whole point of holding it, you know, of, of getting that majority support. Ranked choice voting allows you to consolidate that into a single election. Uh, part some part of the New York City story is actually related to that as well because they had primary runoffs if nobody got above forty percent of the vote in a primary election. Very very expensive, very low turnout, very unrepresentative turnout. Uh, primary runoffs in New York City no longer going to be a part of their system. So it solves some really basic problems, makes elections friendlier, more fair. Uh, just sort of an easy easy fix to a lot of the things that people are most frustrated with in politics today. Well, Drew, really appreciate your time. By the way, just as a side before we wrap, have you heard of the star voting thing, which is sort of a, a twist on, they would probably say an updated version of ranked choice voting, where you actually get to score folks, not just rank them. They, they almost got it passed in Eugene. They might get it passed this time. Have you followed that yet? Uh, yeah, yeah. So star voting, you're you're giving people a rating on a scale from zero to five. Yeah. And this is a method that hasn't been used anywhere yet. You know, I'd like to see more experimentation with it. I'd like yeah. to see it used in some private associations and that sort of thing. Not sure how I feel about it in public elections quite yet, but uh, but you know, it's a it's a new idea. It was just invented a few years ago. So I think it's uh, funny. I think it's funny that you're like the status quo guy now. <laughs> like, 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 like <laughs> the rank choice. Be like, well, that's that's a new idea. We better better test this a few before not just government yet. Uh, No, I appreciate you taking the time, man. All right. Thank you very much. People can find out more at fairvote.org. 
You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. You know, CBD is great stuff. It doesn't get you high, but it sure does do a good job in your body. Uh, We've been using New Leaf Natural CBD oil for a while now. CBD oil is non-intoxicating, which makes it great for people who want the health benefits of cannabinoids without the mind-altering effects of medical marijuana. And it's it's non-toxic. Plus, it has potent pain-relieving and anti-inflammatory properties. The brand that we use is New Leaf Naturals. New Leaf Naturals is the highest quality CBD oil on the market. It's 100% organic, highly concentrated, contains no additional additives, grown in the United States, and the only ingredient is hemp. So the product remains in its most pure and simple form. Go to newleafnaturals.com, that's N-U-LeafNaturals.com, and save 30% off and get free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, spelled T-H-O-M. Go to NULeafnaturals.com. For premium cannabinoid wellness, there's only one place, newleafnaturals.com. That's N-U-LeafNaturals.com, newleafnaturals.com. What is a moderate? What is a centrist? What is the center of the American political debate? I remember three conversations. First one, 15 years ago, I was working to raise money for the democracy nonprofit I was starting, and I was meeting with the son of the most, one of the most storied wealthy families in my town. Their family name adorned our leading theater. And during that conversation, I'll never forget this. He said, you know, most people, I was a pretty young guy, and he said, most people, he was, he was taking this opportunity to give me a political education. He did not, by the way, end up offering support for the organization. But you see, most people are socially tolerant and economically conservative. I remembered that. About 12 years ago, I was having a meeting with the leading real estate developer, one of the, yeah, maybe probably the leading real estate developer in my town, running a nonprofit means fundraising. And we bumped into a wealthy gay activist in our town. And the governor's race came up. And the Republican who was running in the governor's race was a favorite of the Chamber of Commerce. And the person I was meeting with was warm to that notion. And they started talking about public employee retirement benefits, and they were talking about housing policy and tax policy. And the guy I was meeting with, the developer, was talking about the reasons he liked the Republican nominee. And finally, the wealthy gay activist, who was also in the conversation, or was on the other side of the conversation, was trying to persuade him to vote for the Democratic nominee, said, ah, but choice, someone's right to choose. Third story, about nine years ago, I was having a conversation with a guy who had sold, was also very wealthy, and had sold an aluminum company. This time I wasn't raising money. We were in a strategy meeting, serving on the governor's steering committee. And he said, to win this election, we need to moderate. We need to go after those moderate voters, those voters in the middle. we got to be in the center. And at that point, I even questioned it. I said, well, who are the people you're talking about? Because I had an idea of the people he was talking about. And it was the people who used the Mac Club or the University Club or the Arlington Club, sort of the fancy places in our town. And as it went forward, I heard from the 
right-wing-leaning libertarians, their argument, thinking they were going to have their moment. They were sharing the, that viewpoint. Where people are is socially tolerant but economically conservative. And the, liberal, the libertarian, excuse me, right-wing, that was a funny slip, the libertarian right-wing sort of takes an extreme view of that. And being a moderate in elections, particularly in general elections, particularly with editorial boards, particularly with campaign donors, is viewed as a virtue. Even just in the common parlance, well, as a moderate-minded person, reasonable person, different things, but I use them together, is viewed as a compliment. Extremist, not deemed a compliment. I want to give a shout out to Lee Drutman, who mapped out the 2016 vote on two dimensions. But keep in mind, and I'm not right now going to make the case of whether being a moderate is a good or bad thing. I, my argument is a little bit different. But most people want to see themselves, as, at least in a vein, as moderate. Mirror neurons make us want to fit in with the tribe. Episodes of Survivor remind us not to be voted off the island. Schoolmates in the lunchroom give us fear of being a weirdo. Employers have some of the same incentives. If you flip off somebody, you flip off the president, maybe you get fired. That's not what a moderate person would do. Political incentives align similarly. When conservatives run towards their base, they are typically running towards their money. When Democrats run to their base in most races, they tend to be running away from their money, certainly away from their bigger donors. Similarly with the media. The media wants to be deemed as moderate in the main, in the main of the stream. Editorial board, one of the best ways to win an editorial board endorsement is to seem the moderate person running against the extremist. And legislative politics reward the same behavior. The blue dog Democrats, as an example, if you're the swing vote in a legislative chamber, you can exact concessions and shape the final result on a given issue when your vote is needed. I'm setting aside for a moment the debate of whether we should aspire to be a moderate, but the word has powerful advantages. And it begs the question, what do we mean by moderate? Lee Drutman mapped the 2016 election. And of course I'm bringing this up because Mayor Bloomberg has entered or looks to be entering the presidential campaign. And his argument, well, we need a, you know, we need a moderate. And the argument, whether, whatever words he says, the argument about him, the clamor for a candidate to make sure that Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders is not the nominee, is, well, we need a moderate. And it begs the question, what do we mean by that? What is a moderate? And I would say that I think it goes back to what that wealthy guy told me 15 years ago, his definition of a moderate. If you ask most editorial boards, what do they mean? Well, what we mean is socially tolerant and economically conservative. I think that's hogwash. I think that's one of the most important political lies and misunderstandings that the conventional wisdom holds in this century. And it happens again and again and again, and you see manifestations of it over and over again. And I would suggest almost every single weekend show that covers politics on any network. And many of your conversations. Oh, what's a moderate? 
Well, it's yeah, the, what they mean is they they want lower taxes for rich people, but they don't want to put gay people in work camps. That's a moderate. Set aside whether or not we think being a moderate is good or bad. But I think what is hogwash is the way, and which is clearly hogwash to me, is how it is defined. And for this, I'll use data. The Drutman mapped out the 2016 election on two dimensions. Opinions on social and identity issues and opinions on economic issues. That map created four quadrants, as they do when you have an x-axis and a y-axis. Those who were liberal on both dimensions, the lower left quadrant, who were liberal on social and identity issues and liberal on economic issues, that was the biggest quadrant with a bullet. 45% of the voters. 45% of the voters were liberal on both economic issues and on social and identity issues. The second biggest quadrant was not the conservative quadrant. That was the third biggest. The upper right-hand quadrant, conservative both on social and identity issues and conservative on economic issues, that comprised 23% of the electorate. The Howard Schultz quadrant, what may end up being the Mayor Bloomberg quadrant, the developer quadrant, the rich guy I was trying to raise money from quadrant, the socially liberal economic conservative quadrant, the moderate quadrant, the one that's in the middle, right? The one that the rich guy told me what everybody was. 4% of the electorate. 4%, the smallest one. It was actually that upper left populist quadrant, 29%, socially conservative and economically liberal. The opposite of what most of the parlance describes as moderate. Let's think about our language, how we describe things. If we're just think about the future, how do we have a future that's not just left to right, but forward and that actually moves forward? This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Stop Being Reasonable, How We Really Change Our Minds by Eleanor Gordon Smith. This is from the introduction. Somewhere in the technological belt of California, where the only thing more precisely engineered than the software is the people, or maybe the people's teeth, lives an organization called the Center for Applied Rationality. For the low price of $3,900, the center will sell you a four-day workshop on reasoning, during which participants eat, sleep, and take part in nine hours of back-to-back -back activities together daily under one presumably rationally designed roof. This year, like every other year, the center will receive hundreds of applications from people who want to attend because, as they put it, everyone I know is irrational and I want to fix them. These folks make for an easy punchline, a good group to laugh at, but it turns out many of us make a version of the same mistake when we think about persuasion. We think we know what it is to change our minds rationally, and the only question is why other people don't do it more often. The ideal mind change is calm. It reacts to reasoned argument. It responds to facts, not to our sense of self or the people around us. It resists the siren song of emotion. People like to talk about the public sphere, if there is such a thing, then its convex edge reflects this idealized image back at us. Think of the number of programs dedicated to the mind-changing magic of two sides saying opposite things. Meet the press, State of the Union, Face the Nation. 
The branding of these things often bakes in a little reward. How brave I am for attending the festival of dangerous ideas. How clever for my subscription to the intelligence squared debates. The proper way to reason, at least according to our present ideal, is to discard ego and emotion and step into a kind of disinfected argument, argumentative operating theater where the sealed air conditioning vents stop any everyday fluff from floating down and infecting the sterilized truth. Years ago, I used to share this view. I was a champion debater, which was another way of saying I spent my weekends wearing a blazer and telling people in precisely timed intervals exactly how wrong they were. My teammates and I constructed arguments for 20 hours a week, putting premises in the crosshairs with the unblinking accuracy of people whose whole egos were on the line. We weren't bad either. Eventually, we made it to the World Championships in Qatar, where we wore blazers embroidered, embroidered with the Australian coat of arms in gold and competed in what looked, in hindsight, like a scene in an apocalypse movie just before the purge begins, all of us in matching uniforms on fleets of white buses being shepherded through the desert haze to auditoriums where we would sit locked up together for an hour, surrounded by stopwatch-wielding officials. Debating left me with an attitude toward persuasion that was as precise as Euclidean geometry. Find the foundation, show why it's wrong. Buttress analysis with evidence. Emotion is for decorative flourishes only. Do not expect it to be load-bearing. Of course, I knew you could change minds by appealing to things like emotion or your opponent's sense of self, but doing that seemed kind of base. It felt nobly sportsmanlike to arm yourself with argument alone. It was the intellectual equivalent of turning up at dawn for your duel with your pistols shined and paces countered. It was how you were meant to fight. This perspective began to change after I produced a piece for the radio show This American Life in 2016. The idea had seemed simple. Turn around to my own catcallers, men who had wolf-whistled or made sexual comments to me on the street, and try to reason them out of doing it again. I spent hours giving these men all the evidence, all the reasoning, all the fancy footwork with premises. But after dozens of conversations, I walked away defeated. Over and over again, they walked away from our conversations as sure as they'd ever been, that it was okay to grab, yell at, or follow women on the street. These men didn't seem fundamentally irrational or unstuck from reality. In fact, in a funny sort of way, I quite liked a few of them. Uh, one told me he modeled his courtship rituals on the animal kingdom. I'm just another paradise bird flaunting my stuff, he said triumphantly, as though this explained everything that needed to be explained. That's a good line. He made me laugh, but I couldn't change their minds. The experience deflated me, not just as a person and as a woman, but as someone who has always been optimistic about our ability to talk each other into better beliefs. We finished recording in November 2016, right after the U.S. general election, which set up a grim backdrop for a newly found pessimism toward rational debate and persuasion. But when the piece aired, a strange thing happened. I was inundated with interview requests. Could I write a 10-step guide to changing minds? Would I accept an award for the successful use of rational persuasion in public? What advice did I have for talking people out of being workplace harassers? I was astonished. Large numbers of people had apparently listened to my conversations with catcallers on the radio, conversations that I had walked away from feeling dejected and defeated, and heard instead instances of persuasive success. I think the explanation is that these conversations bore a sort of Madame Tussauds-like resemblance to what we think good mind changes look like. I said one thing, my catcaller said the opposite thing, and each of us tried to explain why we were right. I had stayed calm, they had been prepared to hear me out. I had used statistics. 
It looked for all the world like a rational debate, and the fact that I had failed to change any minds with this approach disappeared under the shadow of the unquestioned assumption that I deserved congratulations for even trying. I started to smell a rat. The book Stop Being Reasonable by Eleanor Gordon Smith. Breaking news, I finally found a topic everyone can agree on. No matter what party you support, the ideas you believe in, or opinions you may have, we can all agree on the fact that aging stinks. Under eye bags, fine lines, wrinkles, crow's feet, no one can escape it. Luckily, I found just the product to help. It's called Plexiderm Rapid Reduction Serum, a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates all your key signs of aging. And the best part is it works in minutes. Now that's newsworthy. No bias here, Plexiderm works. And with all the holiday parties coming up, there's no invasive surgeries, no complication, and the best part is no one has to know that you're wearing it. It's remarkable. You'll look just like you, only years younger. Go to triplexiderm.com and use my code TOM, T-H-O-M, for 50% off plus an additional 10 bucks off. That's right, 50% off plus an extra $10 off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-685-1292 and mentioning the code TOM, T-H-O-M. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. Visit triplexiderm.com today and use the code TOM at checkout, T-H-O-M. That's triplexiderm.com, code TOM. We're back. I'm Jefferson Smith. This is the Tom Hartman Show. What's a moderate? And what's the purpose of government? And if it's to protect people or if it is to promote justice, how do we think about that data that 19,000 people's lives were saved, at least conservative estimate, because of the expansion of Medicaid and 15,000 people's lives were lost because of the refusal in states, largely southern states, to refuse to block Medicaid expansion. We're taking your calls. Julie Briskman, who flipped off the president. And on the air is James, who I don't think liked that very much. Hey, James. The fact that I don't like it is the fact that if, if I had done that to Obama, y'all would be having an uproar, you know, of, of disagreement. And I, I, I would be, absolutely. And one of the primary reasons is because I think we reap what we sow. And this president has demonstrated with his own conduct disrespect for the American people, disrespect for his supporters. I do view Julie's conduct differently than someone who treated Obama with scorn because President Obama demonstrated every day and every week deep respect for humanity, including respect for opponents. Donald Trump has not demonstrated that respect. Uh, do, you, uh, do you disagree? Do you think that Donald Trump is worthy of that kind of respect? What did Obama do for Americans who were descendants of slavery? Nothing. He oh, didn't yeah. do anything. So, so, you, so you want me to be so loud and boisterous over him, but he didn't do anything for me. No, I, I, I wasn't. I and wasn't. I, and I want, I want the office to be respected. Like he would always sit there and say, when y'all go low, they, we go high. That's what I want. And so you want, so you want really, you, really low. All right. I hear you. I hear you. I don't agree that the uh that the fact that 
we would have felt disrespect towards Obama in a different way than we feel it towards Trump is a reason uh, should guide our conduct primarily. But I do think it's an interesting question about how we should treat this president. We haven't had to, we haven't had the context of a president like this. It comes up when the president gets booed in the an ultimate fighting championship or gets booed at a World Series game or gets more cheered when he goes to the Deep South and he goes to Alabama, you know, goes to Alabama. And how we should treat the presidency is a good question. And I think there's at least two easy points. One, in this country, if, if the right to speech is anything, criticizing our ruler is its primary uh, virtue. So we should be allowed to do it. And the second thing is this sort of thing I was bringing up, which is, you know, I, I don't know that I'd flip off the president, but this is probably the first president of my lifetime that I would sacrifice my life to, ch to change the occupant of the White House. If there were, it, that, that I would give up just about anything I could if I thought that it would, in fact, make sure that we could restore democracy in that sense. I didn't feel that about George W. Bush, even though I think he's one of the worst presidents of all time. Uh, and without getting in a, into a debate, and James, thank you for your call, but in a debate about the Obama White House, I think that question about how this president deserves to be treated is a mildly interesting question. Mark, go ahead from San Francisco. Yes, Jefferson, I wanted to talk about the Republican policies in general are killing Americans. Uh, with the lifting of, of regulations for water and air, um, you know, Planned Parenthood closing closing those down, affecting women's health. Uh, overall, th their policies are destructive and, and really uh, detrimental to, to, to the American people. And that's the story that's not being told today. I appreciate you. Gary from Vancouver, go ahead. Hi, Jeff, this is Gary. Uh, yeah, in, in reference to what Mark said, too, yeah, this is destroying infrastructure. Jeff Bezos is worth $170 billion. If he were to spend $50 million of that dollars every year, it would take him 3,400 years to spend that. The reason, I, and I don't understand why people can't live on $1 billion or have a maximum uh, wage, because we have a, a minimum wage, we should have a maximum wage as well. But the reason that we don't have money to spend on schools, health care, and, and infrastructure and so forth is because our oligarchs own this kind of money. And it's just sitting offshore doing nothing. I don't understand it. I'm a Vietnam veteran with a Purple Heart. Your turn. Th thank you, Gary, for your service, and thank you for the call. Yeah, and I think you're in, you're in Washington State, not Seattle, but uh, my understanding right. is that Bezos did just, uh, that, that uh, I guess more accurately, Amazon and a bunch of, uh, and a bunch of independent expenditure money uh, just attempted to buy the city council, or at least a, city council, a couple city council seats in Seattle. Have you been tracking that story? I have not, but th this is what I'm talking about. Yeah. Why, how can he, why should we allow this to happen? These people that Matt was talking about uh, <clears throat> keep voting against our own best interests and yep. theirs, yep. and yet they continue to do it. It, it, of course, is the big, is the big thing that's going on. When I, when I talk about trying to get past division, it is not to find a place in the center. It is to save democracy. And I think if you save democracy, if you, to quote Larry Lessig or to cite Larry Lessig, you know, when we talk about the democracy reform stuff, and I think we are going to be talking about uh, not only what happened in Seattle with Bezos' attempt to buy a city council race or city council chamber. Uh, and also, by the way, Bezos talking to, and I guess persuading, uh, uh, pushing for Bloomberg to run for president, that 
I don't think that Mike Bloomberg is the greatest threat to democracy. I, I'm not. I'm not even mad at the guy. I do think that gaping wealth disparities and the impact of gaping wealth disparities on our small d democratic process is tied for the greatest threat to America. And so I appreciate your phone call. Howdy, everybody. I'm Jefferson Smith. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Show. We're glad that you are. Raise the question, not only what the purpose of government is, or how do we think about protecting people. Also raise the question of what is a moderate? What is a centrist? In a legislative chamber in this century, run by lobbyists, run almost entirely by corporate lobbyists, because that's almost who almost all the lobbyists are, who are there not advocating for the good of the order. That's not their job. Their job is to advocate for the interests of their client, almost entirely the financial self-interest of their client. That the moderate tends to be the person who's half sold out. That in the face of kleptocracy, in the face of rampant corruption, the definition of moderate tends to be half sold out. Just don't like to call it that. I have a different definition, at least if we think of moderation as a virtue. Immoderation in the face of grave catastrophe, maybe no vice. Let's take Michael's call. Michael from the Bronx. Go ahead, Michael. Hey, Jeff. How you doing? Doing all right. So I can help you with this a bit. Please. The, act- the actual thing of centrism and moderate will probably be befitting to me because of someone that is an actual centrist, an actual moderate, will believe in equal accountability, equal rights, equal protection. The key word here is equality straight down the middle. Now, I understand what you're saying about someone that could be um, half sold out, and believe me, I've seen it. Okay, I'm also even struggling since I'm a Christian. No way, shape, or form am I perfect, but I'm devoted to the church, believing in the teachings of Jesus Christ. It's all about peace, love, goodwill to one another, respecting the rights of others. However, there are those in the Christian um, spectrum that will claim to be Christian but do everything opposite of what Jesus Christ has taught about peace, love, and goodwill to one another. How in the world can you call yourself a Christian and then you allow people to bring guns into a church and have a priest, a right-wing priest, bless those guns right in front of a blessed tabernacle that has um, Jesus Christ as per Christian faith, Catholic faith, the symbol of life. I, no, I couldn't agree with you more. And the uh, and it's something that I tend to talk about a bunch when I'm here. And at some point, if I'm back for an extended period, might want to do a series of guests on it. The subversion of the Christian faith. If you read the New Testament, heck, you read the whole Bible, and the number of times it says, "Help the poor, cure the sick, be a steward of the land," vastly dwarf any 
tenuous interpretation that one can find in the Bible for anything that resembles a right-wing playbook. But it is not new for Christianity being subverted, being stolen to do evil. It was the basis of manifest destiny, uh, Christian teachings being used to justify racism through American history, Christian teachings teaching that black people are the sons of ham and therefore subhuman, the post-millennialists versus the premillennialists, the the Christian uh, change agents, the Christian uh, peace lovers, the suffragettes, the civil rights uh, movers, the uh, uh, the peace protesters who said, no, Jesus Christ will return after a thousand years of peace until finally there was support, particularly in the South, for a different kind of theology, one that said, no, Jesus Christ will bring a thousand years of peace after times of strife and war. We don't got to worry about good works. We don't got to worry about loving thy neighbor. We don't have to worry about curing the sick. We don't have to worry about helping the poor. We don't have to worry about being a steward of the land. All we have to do is pray, and then everything will be fixed when Jesus comes. That the uh, that the Christian teachings in the South justifying slavery somehow figuring out that the New Testament, that Jesus Christ as a teacher that those teachings could be used to justify slavery and racism. And then later after that, Jim Crow was the kind of tenuous twisting that had to be done to maintain by folks in the South to maintain that social order. It is not a new thing for Christianity to be twisted to justify racism and division. And I appreciate your call because I think, I think most people are like you and I don't mean Christian. I think most people like you that they think of themselves as reasonable. Most people, do. I mean, there's some, I know some, myself at moments, who think, no, no, I define myself in part because I'm unreasonable, because I'm willing to be different than other people. I'm willing to be distinctive. But most people, most of the time, want to fit in. They want to feel special, and they want to fit in. In Search of Excellence, this, uh, oh, who wrote In Search of Excellence? But he said humans have basically two, they have two basic needs, to feel special and to feel like they belong. Most people want to fit in. They don't want to feel like a weirdo. But then the definition of what a centrist is, I like your definition. Paul Wellstones was being at the center of people's lives. Let's go to Donna from California. Hello, Donna. I just had a reply to your question, and yeah. I believe that they're there to protect the neoliberal status quo that has benefited the fortunate few. They are not fiscally conservative because they have no problem voting for thousands, millions, and millions of dollars for more war. They only draw the line on programs that benefit the average citizen. And I believe all of this, with many other factors, have helped bring in and usher in the Trump era. And it is just tragic beyond all measure. And that they put themselves out there as reasonable when clearly they are not. And that's really all I have to say Thank you very much. Donna, thanks so much for your call. I want to say thanks so much to all of our listeners. It is such an honor to do this. You are the coalition of the benevolently irrational, the good people doing good things for no good reason. Without you, democracy doesn't have that much of a chance. With you, we got a chance. You are priceless. Definition of priceless, worth a lot, not for sale. Thanks, everybody. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Yeah.